Well, let's, uh, let's turn to Revelation chapter 17. Getting to this particular chapter is, um, I, don't, I, I don't want to call it a milestone. We've been <laughs> going through a little over two years of studying the book of Revelation. And, uh, and each time that we get into it, we realize that, that so much is happening in the world that really coincides with, with, what's, with, with what's taking place uh, uh, scripturally. And, and vice versa, you know, the scriptures are opening up more and more as we, as we see the day of Christ approaching. And um, if, if we look at things in general, we, we see that there are tremendous geopolitical issues rising up all over the place. You, you stay watching Fox News or CNN or something, and, and you realize it's just globally there's, there's all this this tension. And it reminds you of the statements that Jesus used to talk about, made very clear in Matthew chapter 24 when he said about wars and rumors of wars, constantly in the air, constantly going on. We'd like to believe that, you know, man in some way, shape or form can end war themselves. But the only problem with that is that man's heart, generally speaking, is sinful. And that's, and, 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 and that's grounds for all kinds of wars. And, and war can be a, a, a very simple uh, issue between two people that go, went, go to war at each other over little things or... Uh, as, as we say, you know, there's, there's geopolitical issues that, that rise up between nations. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, peoples against people, or peoples, and, and so the, the issues are, are, are pretty clear that uh, before anyone could figure out what's going on in the world, Jesus already made it very clear what's going to be happening in the times in which we're living. And so it isn't so much as, as if he had some uncanny thing or knowledge. I mean, he's God. He was then, he is now. And I say that because he said, I'm going away, but I'm going to come again. I'm going to receive you to myself. That's speaking to the church, speaking to the body of Christ. So we enter into this new chapter after seeing the devastation, at least what John saw, of the last part of the seven years of tribulation that the book of Revelation uh, makes clear to us is going to happen. And the effect that uh, this beast who is called the Antichrist, uh, the effect that he's going to make on, on, the, uh, on the issues of the, of the world today. I'm hoping that as we get into chapter 17 and 18, primarily in chapter 17, but also in chapter 18, but I, I want to make clear that we're going to deal with issues that, that may go beyond what we might have heard 10, 15, 20 years ago when, when most uh, uh, Bible prophecy teachers were, were saying that when you start looking at these particular chapters and we look at at uh, the representations of the uh, of, of the prophecies given back in Daniel of the uh, of the nations, especially the the European nations or the European common market or the European uh, uh, kingdom, as it were, uh, the Roman uh, Roman Empire or the uh, revived Roman Empire, and started starting to think in those terms. We we always tend to look to Europe, but we used to, and now we have to realize a couple of things. The rise of Islam has changed a lot of what's going on as far as what is, what is the, uh, the, the stronger effect up, upon the world politically. And not only that, but what a revived Roman Empire would really look like. Now, I made reference about this a long, long time ago. Uh, I'd say a few months ago. It seems like a long time ago. But I made reference to the fact that if you looked at the, at the Roman Empire and what it was in the days of John, 
you would realize that much of the Roman Empire was made up of those who lived in the Arab nations. So there's that connection. And then when you, when you hear about, uh, you know, what uh, the, the threat is to Israel, because Israel now is a nation again, why then are we so concerned about that? Because God said, I'm going to restore these people and I'm going to take those seven years to give them that last seven years of, 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 uh, of discipline as it were, but uh, chastisement because they, they, there's seven years that are missing in the time period that is given to us in the book of, of Daniel about the 70 years of, uh, of uh, the, uh, the judgment upon Israel before Jesus returns. So, with that happening, and Israel in the land again, then we, we have to determine that all the nations that are coming against Israel are not just nations uh, randomly, but the nations surrounding Israel, and in particular, the nations of the north, as it says, north of Israel. Well, if we think that it's only Russia, or as it were years ago, before, uh, before uh, the Soviet Union was, was di- uh, dismantled and then it became the Confederacy of Russian States or whatever, we used to say, oh no, it's, it's all Russia, you know, it's, it's, it's this communistic uh, Russia that's going to come down. Yeah, well, it was north. But now when you look at the map today, you see that north, every, every nation north of Israel, as close as, as Syria and Lebanon, go above or beyond that, Turkey. One of the great influences. We're going to talk a lot about Turkey later. Now I'm not talking about the bird. I'm talking about the nation. We're going to talk about Turkey because of its influence right now in, in world politics. Not only that, but all of the southern nations in Russia or what is considered Russia or Russia confederacies or whatever, or that used to be part of the Soviet Union. Any, any nation that ends in the S-T-A-N letters, you know, like uh, Kyrgyzstan or uh, uh, Kazakhstan, these are primarily Islamic nations. So we see now the influence of Islam in, in, in this geopolitical world kind of uh, uh, boiling, uh, boiling pot that we have. So uh, we're, go- we're going to be dealing with these things. I'm just kind of presenting this so that you can realize that, that it's going to take us a little time to kind of go through this because I want to make sure that you, you get a, a full picture of what's going on. But remember this. This is yet to happen. These things are yet to happen. But we want to be able to present these particular prophecies as clearly tied into all of the prophecies that are given in the Old Testament so that we realize that there is a continuity in scriptural, in, in, in prophetic scriptures. There is a, a uh, um, that, you know, it all just works together hand in hand. There's, there, it never contradicts itself. So we can say very clearly that the, the, the prophetic scriptures are consistent with each other. And I, I can tell you this, we're going to look at scriptures in the book of Genesis all the way through all of the prophets and see how they all tie in to this one real threat in these end times that involves the Islamic nations. So, uh, keeping that in mind, let's go to verse 1 of Revelation chapter 17. And let's look at the, uh, the first six verses. We're only going to cover about four of the verses, and we're going to come back to some of them, because we're going to start layer upon layer putting some stuff together in this chapter. It says, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying... Now remember that the seven bowls were the last set of judgments that were to be poured out I speak in the past tense, but we know that it's yet to be future, but it's how John has seen it. So there were, there were three sets of, of judgments, beginning at the beginning of the seven-year uh, period of tribulation. Uh, uh, the seal judgments were open, and then the seventh seal was open, was open and that, that meant that the, now the, the trumpet judgments would, would take place. So the dr- trumpet judgments uh, continue all the way through the seventh the seventh trumpet judgment brings forth the bold judgments. And each set seems to progressively get more intense 
and, and, and greater in, in scope as far as the judgments are concerned upon the world. It says, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying uh, to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. This is a new development here. The judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Do we all know what a harlot is? For the most part, we, we do. I hope. If not, we'll explain it. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Again, notice the past tense uh, that is emphasized here is spe- spoken as if it's already happened, yet we know that it hasn't. It has happened at least in what John has been given as far as revelation of what is to take place. So please understand that. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, that is with a great harlot, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Now we're going to really focus upon this issue of the wilderness. The wilderness. So you might want to underline that word. We're going to come back to it a few times today as well as next time. He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman. Again, now he's seeing these things as he is being given this, uh, this vision. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now we have seen a beast before that has seven heads and ten horns. We'll come back to that. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup of, uh, full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Abomination is just the, the worst kinds of wickedness, the worst kinds of evil uh, that can be perpetuated upon anyone. And so there is going to be a judgment upon this uh, the, and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great. Now I know a lot of times people say Mystery Babylon. Okay, well that's okay. But the idea is to say, here's a mystery, Babylon the Great. Now, if you remember last week and the week prior to last week, we talked about the word great being used a lot. It was used a lot in chapter 16. And, and the idea of greatness is not so much greatness in the, in, the, in the good sense, but great in the very large sense, okay? So something is great being that it has some great scope to it. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now, you can get a lot of pictures of what it might look like, you know, but I mean, there's a, there's a beast with a woman on it with a cup. Now, in chapter 16, we were introduced to those seven angels who would pour out the bowls of God's wrath, the final judgments upon the world and its inhabitants, the unrighteous and the ungodly earth dwellers who reject God and His mercies, who reject the cross, who reject Jesus Christ, because they love their sin and their flesh more than they would love the God who created them and the God who would save them. But in chapter 17 and 18, we find a, this, this new parenthetical passage. In other words, this is kind of a parenthesis to some other things that are yet to happen. And it gives greater details here of the seven-year tribulation period, particularly the last half of that period that we know as the Great Tribulation. So the seven years, and this again is just review, but the seven years themselves are called the, they are called the tribulation period. But beginning at the three and a half year point toward the end, that is now called the Great Tribulation because the tribulation, the judgments have gotten greater and more intense. Now these chapters are dedicated to describing Babylon's destruction in two forms. Now, 
Before we go on, remember this. We've been talking about the river Euphrates. We've seen the mention of the river Euphrates. And I said last time that there's, there's really no way that we can actually put the river Euphrates into prophetic uh, literature or language without it really being literal. How, how, do, how do you uh, make it a metaphor or whatever? I mean, today, you know, like some people would say, well, there is no real Israel anymore, so, you know, we don't, we don't support the nation of Israel, and so we're going to, you know, support the plight of the Palestinians because we believe that the, Israel, you know, the Israelis are, are the, the, the aggressors and whatnot, and they're just to- totally messed up. And I, I believe, I honestly believe that Satan has blinded a lot of people to that. Because they're, they're, real, they're not realizing when God speaks of Israel, He's not speaking of the church. He's speaking of Israel. And He's not done with them yet, see. We, we talk a lot about that. But here, here's the thing. We, we talk about the river Euphrates and the importance of that. And we've made some of those issues clear already. So if that is considered then to be literal, then so must this issue of Babylon. Now here's where a lot of times we get a little messed up because many times we think that Babylon is really, you know, just a, a symbolic Babylon. And we, we can use uh, verses of Scripture where Peter himself talks of, you know, uh, as he ends one of his letters, he says, you know, the saints in Babylon greet you. And they say that he used that to describe Rome. And, and that's okay for him to describe Rome that way because, in fact, Rome was very much... Uh, into a Babylonian system of their kinds of worship. Because, again, we're going to see that all of this is dealing with idolatry and worship. But when we get to the, the, the dealings with Babylon, we're going to see in the Old Testament and the New Testament that we're dealing with something that's very literal. So, the religious Babylon, the, the destruction of Babylon is, is going to be in two forms. The destruction of the religious Babylon and the commercial Babylon. And both, by the way, will be tied together by Antichrist political system, which is also referred to as Babylon. So at this point, we are observing something that takes place, again, out of chronological sequence. We talked a little bit about that last week. Especially those events found in chapter 17, which possibly occur at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, or midway through the seven years. Now this chapter here deals with the destruction, as I said, of religious Babylon, her judgment by God at the hand of the Antichrist. Yes, Babylon will be destroyed by the hand of, of Antichrist. And again, we'll see these things as we go along. But Babylon as a city, because it's a city. And back uh, a few years ago, uh, you know, in the first... Uh, one of the first wars we had in, in, in Iraq that uh, they actually were excavating, or at least Saddam Hussein was excavating much of the old Babylonian city that was called Babylon and, uh, you know, claimed some connection, you know, uh, to as, as a descendant of uh, Nebuchadnezzar and all of those people that were in the original Babylon. But... Uh, as a city, Babylon is mentioned approximately 280 times in Scripture, more than any other city in the Scriptures except for Jerusalem. So I, I say that because I'm going to tell you right now, there isn't that much mention of Rome. There isn't that much mention of really any other city. Uh, uh, there are mentions of cities, but uh, Babylon 280 times and, and that's the most of any city other than Jerusalem. Symbolically, it's, it does stand as a counterpart and an enemy of God. In other words, Babylon, you know, we talk about Egypt being a type of, of the world. You know, Babylon is, is a real type of, of, of an evil system, of an evil religious system. All religious systems, as a matter of fact, all religious systems except for, of course, Judeo-Christian belief. All religious systems stem from Babylon. The Egyptians' religions, the Phoenician religions, the Greek mythology, along with many others, stem from Babylon. Consider also that uh, Roman Catholicism and apostate Protestantism 
So the Catholics are not alone in this. You know, there's there's an apostasy that is in the Protestant uh, churches as well. Some, not all churches, but just there is an apostate Protestantism that has been affected and perverted by the embrace of certain religious Babylonian uh, systems and and uh, rituals and rites. Its its origin, of course, goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, which we'll get to shortly. But as we look at our text, we see that John is invited by one of the angels to view the judgment of a woman who is called the great harlot. Now, the King James Version uses the appropriately stronger term, the great whore. For the Greek word is, uh, that is used for that word harlot or whore is the word porne, P-O-R-N-E. And I think you can kind of figure out certain other words from that Greek root word. The Greek root word is actually pornos. And porne is a word that has its basis in fornication. It has its basis in harlotry. And is also associated with a Hebrew word. Though it doesn't sound the same. It is associated with this Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is Kedeshah, which describes a woman that is consecrated or devoted to prostitution in connection with the abominable worship of Asherah or Astarte, which takes us back to the earliest Babylonian practices of idolatry that included temple or shrine prostitutes as part of their worship rituals. And by the way, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings in our study of the book of Genesis, you remember that Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah, to get to Judah and awaken him or to you know, get back at him or whatever you, however you want to look at it, she actually dressed as a shrine prostitute because the Canaanites had, of course, embraced you know, the very basic... Uh, religious rites of the Babylonians. As we said, that is the very basis for all pagan and heathen worship. And of course, the root word in Greek gives us the word pornography as part of our own vocabulary. So I think we get an idea and a picture of all of the ugliness, as it were. And I say that from the sense of how how. Sexual sins is such a destructive thing, and and this is why so often in the scriptures we are we are commanded to to and, and warned to be careful of these kinds of sins that all go back to the issue of porne or pornos, which deals uh, with actually idolatry, idolatry. You know when you read the the, the uh, letters of Paul, every time he mentions I uh, any sexual sins. They're always right next to a mention of idolatry. You check it out. Look, look at some of the things that, that Paul writes. And whenever he writes about sexual sins, any, any of the issues of fornication and adultery and all of these things, there's always idolatry right next to it. Because they're so closely tied together. But what we find now in these ver- first six verses is a, is, is a real terrible picture of a wicked mor- immor- immorality and a spiritual prostitution of grave proportions. And the key of this chapter is found in verse 5. So let's go back and look at verse 5. Because it says of this woman, it says, On her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. In other words, she is the mother of harlots and the mother of the abominations of the earth. So let's take this first statement, mystery, Babylon the Great. Because God is wanting to lift the veil. Now, why would He lift the veil? Because He first calls it a mystery. And when you have a mystery that's going to be revealed, there has to be an unveiling. (laughs) And God is wanting to lift the veil for all to see the abominable things that this woman represents. She is called the mother of harlots. Now, a harlot can be described as someone 
who provides an alternative to a legitimate relationship. In other words, an unlawful intimacy. An unlawful intimacy. And this woman is the mother of illegitimacy. She is the mother of harlotry. She is the mother of prostitution. In essence, not just the physical kind of prostitution, but the spiritual kind. That is the most focused point that we need to make here about the kind of of, of uh, harlotry and idolatry that is being described here. It is dealing with spiritual fornication, spiritual prostitution. And this is an abomination to God. So this term also denotes unfaithfulness. If, if you consider the sexual sins in the scriptures that are mentioned, uh, adultery, fornication, and the like, All of these are based upon unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness. Spiritual harlotry, then, provides alternatives to a right relationship with the living and true God. You see, there is only one right relationship with God. Not many. What does that sound like to you? How many times have you ever heard people say, there are many roads to God? Have we heard that? There are many ways to worship God. Oh, we can learn so much from other people. God says no. To the Jewish people, to the, to the Israelites, you know, to the very foundation of Israel, the name of Israel, or the people of Israel, you go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even before the sons of Jacob come along to become the nation of Israel, they're already warned not to have relations with the Canaanite women. He wasn't saying, don't have relationship with them until later on when you just decide you want to. He says, don't do it. Because he knows, first of all, he knows the heart of man. He knows the ways of man who, uh, for example, even if we're Israelites, even if we're uh, part of the sons of Jacob or the sons of Israel, guess what? We were still born in sin. Right? So if we are born in sin, then what do we need? We need a Savior. And we need to be encouraged from the youngest of ages. This is why Deuteronomy chapter 6 is so important. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echod. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall teach this to your children. But nowadays, oh my goodness, education is so weird. Isn't it? It's become so free, so liberal. Oh, let them grow up and discover who they are. And when we do that, what do we do? The devil will take them. It's a battle as it is if you have taught them the right things, right? It's still a battle. That's why we can't give up. Sharing the love of Christ to our family. Sharing the love of Christ with our children. There's only one right relationship. So, well, I could spend a lot of time on that, but some, some would call her, this, this harlot, the representative of a false church system. Now again, I say some would. Some would call her the representative of a false church system that dominates, and I emphasize church system, that dominates the world scene in the climactic hours before the second coming of Christ to the earth, But this would actually be too narrow of a term to call it a a false church system. Because we we, here in the West, we get this idea, and and you can go back to some of the literature and and tracts that were written back in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. When you go back and you look at these things, uh, we're we're kind of meant to believe that, that, you know, uh, the Antichrist is going to live either in New York or in... in, uh, uh, London, or maybe uh, uh, in Brussels, where the you know the, all of these nations kind of meet, you know, or someplace in Europe, and he's he's really going to be kind of European, or he's going to be some 
you know, something else. And, and, and really his whole idea is to, is to really deceive all the people who go to church. So, so all of a sudden, you know, there's this, there's this move toward ecumenical, you know, ties and stuff, but it's always focused on the church. And then, you know, so, so you see, you know, guys with Pope's hats and, you know, all kinds of collars and, and whatnot in the, in the literature and the, and, and all. And they're saying, well, you know, it's, it's this, the, the 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 mystery Babylon is is the Catholic Church or it's or it's some form of that that unites all the churches. You, you see how how narrow that thought is. That might work in the West, but the majority of people live in the East. Okay, you, you understand that. So so here we go. We need to kind of look a little more deep into what's going on. So we are told in verse one of our text that. This woman is sitting upon many waters. And that's a phrase that is symbolic and it is interpreted for us in verse 15. So let me jump down to verse 15. Again, we're, we're laying a foundation here, so we're not, we're not going verse by verse quite yet. But here we go in verse 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw, there's an interpretation coming. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So you see... When you think about all of the religions of the world, not everybody goes to church. You see how, how we kind of narrowed the view? Because we live in the United States where there was a time when more people went to church than didn't. The sad thing is today, it's not that way. Less people go to church than used to. But this shows the scope of the seducing harlot's influence. She sways the surging masses of humanity throughout the whole earth in an ecclesiastical rule. Yes, ecclesiastical or ecumenism as it were. Although the masses are not always found in churches. Some will be found in mosques. Some will be found in temples. And even some in synagogues. All of those places are tied to what? Religion. Or a religious system. I want you to remember that Jesus said to the church in Smyrna, Smyrna was the persecuted church of the seven churches to whom he wrote. And to the church in Smyrna he wrote in Revelation 2 verse 9, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Isn't that an interesting statement? Now, I know we studied that about two years ago. That was a long time. But, but I bring this up because I want you to realize that it's not just churches where Satan wants to overrun and overrule. Now, to the church in Philadelphia, the other good church in the seven churches that were mentioned. The church of Philadelphia was the faithful church. And just a chapter later, verse 9 again, kind of keeps them kind of well put together. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Wow, that's a tremendous statement as well. The point I'm trying to make here is that the ecumenical movement that promotes cooperation between many Protestant denominations and even with the Catholic Church, but they don't become part of this, but that may have had its true modern beginning though. And I say modern beginning in 1948 with the establishment of the World Council of Churches. How many of you ever heard of the World Council of Churches? A few of you, okay. Interesting. For the most part, the churches involved with the World Council of Churches are primarily liberal. Many of them do not believe that the, that the Bible is, is, is uh, uh, the full word of God. They have a lot of different views about that. Uh, many of the preachers or pastors or ministers or whatever they like to be called, uh, many of them do not even believe that Jesus uh, was uh, was born of a virgin. They do not believe that he died on the cross. They, they believe other things, yet they still consider themselves a, a Christian church of some sort. 
this brings us to that uh, t- uh, statement that I've made before that there is the, the, the church that God knows is the true church, the invisible church of Jesus Christ that only, Jesus, that only God knows. And then there is the visible church that is called Christendom, which means it's, it's, it's a combination of everybody, anybody who might even have a cross that, that represents them in some way. Uh, Christendom is different than Christianity in a sense, okay? We're not going to go into all the details there. But nonetheless, uh, they are liberal in their theological positions and hence would rather focus on social issues than on the promotion and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this same attitude was adopted in the United States in the form of the National Council of Churches, which has become the National Council of the Churches of Christ, which was established in 1950. Now, 13 years later, on April 12, 1963, the New York Times published a report of J. Irwin Miller. This is Mr. Miller, the president of the National Council of Churches. Again, 1963, and listen to what he said. He said, we are gratified at the growing area of agreement among leaders and peoples of the Judeo-Christian heritage and of other religious faiths. Notice, other religious faiths on basic matters affecting the peace of the world and the well-being of God's whole family. Now, I've got to interpret this for you a little bit because, you see, whenever he says, whenever it says that uh, he's speaking of other religious faiths, of course, that's faiths outside of the of the uh, basic Christian belief. Uh, it could include uh, the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church are not members of the NCC or the WCC, but they are in cooperation with. So they work with them anyway, but they don't call themselves members. It could also mean other faiths outside of the Christian heritage or outside of the Christian church. But notice for what? For the affecting of the peace of the world... And the well-being of God's whole family. Now, with that statement in mind, he's saying, everybody in the world is in God's whole family. Now, that sounds nice. But it's false. Because the Bible tells us, first of all, when confronted by his critics and his enemies, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. Because he was a liar from the beginning. And Jesus laid a line on the sand. And he said, there, is, there are those whose father is the creator of all things, the, heaven and, the heavens and the earth. And you believe and trust in him and his son, who he represents and who he is as well, the creator and God the Father, or God the Son, I should say. Or you're of the father, the devil. That's quite a line. And you see, it wasn't done by a denomination. It wasn't done by some group. It was Jesus himself. It was Jesus himself. So everybody says in these kinds of groups of people, they said, oh, we're all in God's family. Later on, I will, I'll quote to you John 14, 6. I'll give it to you now. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. There is no other way. There is no other name. Exclusively, he says, no one, no man, no person comes to the Father except through him. So when you see things like this, this is a picture uh, there in Israel of, of uh, Jews. This, is, this person here close up is, is uh, obviously a, a Jewish person with the phylacteries that are on his head. And, and right next to him, in the, uh, to the left of him, is uh, is uh, these are Muslims right here in front. So they're having this, this little get-together, you know, because they want to have peace. Now, we understand that's a good thing to try to have, but, uh, and there's some, I believe there's also some Christian uh, representation here. Uh, it's the same kind of issue. You know, you have rabbis, you have uh, uh, Muslim clerics uh, together here, and this is one of those signs that sometimes you see on your, 
uh, well, when you're driving, the bumper stickers that coexist. Uh, this is just one form. There's many forms. This one is Islam, Buddhism, science, Judaism, paganism, uh, Wiocon. Uh, I think that's Wiccan. It's supposed to be. And Christian. And, and say, we, we just need to coexist, you know. We just need to coexist. We, 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 we should, uh, well, you know, it would be real nice if it, was, it wasn't for Islam going around and killing everybody. I mean, that's... It'd be quite a different thing, don't you think? Uh, so, and they like to kill just about everybody there. And, and this is another one that, that uh, involves uh, other little symbols. You know, uh, uh, of course, the cross is there always. The the star of David is always there, and so is the uh, crescent moon of, of Islam. And then, but then there's the peace nicks in the second uh, uh, thing, and then the third thing is really the alternative lifestyles of whichever way you want to go, whatever. You see, I mean, it's all there, isn't it? Isn't that something? So it shouldn't surprise us when we see men and women of various religious faiths making pilgrimages to places like Rome to see a man who has been exalted as the Holy Father, even though the Scriptures say he's called no man father. Or they call him the voice of God. Actually, uh, the Pope is considered the voice of God on the earth. And yet we have the Word of God each and every one of us. And then, many of them bow down to him as though he were a god. You can certainly include the Roman Catholic Church in in playing a very strategic role in world affairs, yes. The Vatican, by the way, is not so much just a religious place, it is a political place too. We'll spend some time on that. But never before has this woman, the great harlot, wooed and won so many devotees of other religions. Does this make you see clearly that we are indeed moving toward the end of the age as the scriptures have indicated? Well, let's look at this. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says, that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. If we are not in the faith of Jesus Christ, then you are bound to be moving in the direction of deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. There's only one true right doctrine, and that's God's doctrine given to us in His Word, Old and New Testament together. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry. An interesting thing, forbidding to marry. We know that in some, in some religious areas, uh, you know, clerics are, are not to marry. They're, you know, they're to be celibate, as it were. Where We don't see that in Scripture. We see that if, if God chooses someone to do that, He will speak to them and show them, but... Here again, this is, this is overall, there are those who forbid to marry. There's, there's another thing that we need to consider on this issue of forbidding to marry. And that is forbidding to marry in God's standard. Keep that in mind. Because a lot has changed about marriage in our day and time. Commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The scriptures are very clear. Even though the Jewish people were taught, uh, you know, their kosher laws and whatnot, nonetheless, even in, even in the book of Acts, we're told, you know, that, P- that Peter was told, hey, listen, you know, why are you, you refusing what God can make clean? Even though they were unclean animals in that vision that he saw of all the animals and, and whatnot. But people, I, I remember there were days, you know, that uh, we, we couldn't eat certain things. But the Lord says, hey, what are you doing? So, just give thanks. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Man, these are perilous times, more perilous than they've ever been. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, have you ever read some of the blogs, you know, that people write today that just attack the church or attack 
Christianity or whatever. It's amazing. They just say all kinds of weird stuff. I can't repeat not even a word of it to you. Uh, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good. Now, now listen to this. Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. Look at this. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. In essence, it's denying the true power the true power of God because you're denying the true God. And it says from such people turn away. A form of godliness. All these religions, all these religious leaders, all these religious ideas, all these philosophies, all these things have a form of godliness but they deny the true power. For of this sort are those who creep into households. Nowadays, that's pretty easy with TV. A lot of people creeping into your houses on TV. And make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. I guess that must be novelas, I don't know. Uh, Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, now these were considered in, 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 in Hebrew tradition, these were, the, these were the magicians of Pharaoh during the time of Moses. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. So there's going to be a time when all of these religions that um, you know seem to all really work a, a, away from and against the true and living God, it'll all be revealed. Now there's one other verse, and that's in James chapter four, verse four. It says, "Adulterers and adulteresses." Now he's not talking about those you know, really that are adulterers and adulteresses in the physical sense. He's talking about spiritual here. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God or hostility with God? To be friends with the world, you know, to join hand in hand, you know, let's, let's, uh, you know, let's sing for peace or let's drink Coca-Cola and we'll be now friends, you know, whatever. He says, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And we have to realize that whatever religion is not based upon the Word of God, truly based upon the Word of God, is in fact hostile toward God, hostile toward the truth. As I said, those who hold uh, the issues like they don't believe in the, in, the, in the virgin birth of Christ, they don't believe in, in, in uh, the fact that he rose again from the dead. Some people really just, they just think that it sounds good just to make you feel good. Uh, this is how they see these things. So the, this, is, this is what God considers as an abomination. Which leads us to the next statement in our, uh, in our uh, text concerning the mother of harlots. She's also the mother of abominations of the earth. The Lord blames, and listen carefully to what I'm going to say here. The Lord blames the blood of the saints and martyrs and the evil and wickedness of the world throughout all of history. He blames it all upon the Babylonian harlot. That is why he's, she's called the mother of the abominations of the earth. So the blood of the saints that was spilled, the blood of the martyrs, it's the, the Babylonian uh, religious system. The evil, the wickedness of the world throughout all of history. I mean, it, it just goes right back to Genesis chapter 10, as we'll see in just a moment. But the origins of this great harlot can be traced all the way back to the time of Nimrod. And, and again, Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. Let's, let's go back and re-meet uh, Nimrod. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. And the implication of that statement is that he began to be a mighty one on his own, for his own sake. Recognized then as someone who is not to be messed with. 
He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. People would say that that has to do with hunting as far as animals. But in fact, the whole statement in verse 9, He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty, mighty hunter before the Lord, literally means that he was a mighty hunter who was antagonistic against and toward the Lord. We did a lot of study of that a long, long time ago. Really a long time ago. When we were early, early chapters of Genesis. But it was from this, you see. And the next verse it says, And the beginning of the kingdom was Bab-el. Bab-el. B-A-B. Kind of, if you want to put a little dash between B-A-B and E-L. Bab-el. Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. Nimrod built the city of Babel, which means gateway to God. Gateway to God. Which God? That's the question. Because his intention was to create a religious system of his own, as suggested to us in Genesis 11. So you go to the next chapter, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Please underline that verse or that phrase that says they made bricks and baked them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, notice, in the place of stone, which is usually what God told us to build with, they made their own bricks. So that should be significant. And they had asphalt for mortar. Another invention of man, as it were. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Notice, a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. We like it here. We're going to make a name for ourselves. I don't care what God says. We're going to do it our way. If they had had any iTunes, they would have had Frank Sinatra doing their song, you know, their theme song. I did it my way. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men Built And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that, will, uh, that they propose to do will be withheld from them. They're going, they're going to do what they want to do. And they're going to go to the greatest of lengths to get it done. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from their from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. And therefore its name is called Babel. You'll notice the emphasis now is in the full word Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Now, If Nimrod was at the center of all that construction, his heart attitude might have been revealed in this manner. He might have said, we will get to God on our own building power. We will get there by our own efforts. And by our own strength. We will get to heaven on our own. You see, that's, that's no different than a lot of people today who say, you know, I'm going to work and, you know, God's going to weigh my good against all my bad. And hopefully I have more good works than my bad works, you see. And nowhere do we see that in Scripture to be the way to get to heaven. Nowhere. It's not like some people will think it's a misconception to think, well, that must be Old Testament because in the New Testament it's, it's by grace, but in the Old Testament you had to work for it. No. 
It's by grace. It's always been. It's by grace. By faith alone. By trust. I've always considered that man's efforts in building against God's will in anything is symbolically represented, as we said, by the use of the brick and the mortar. Because remember that when God builds, He uses stone, which He Himself made. And so they went from Babel, gateway to God, to Babel, which means confusion. And yet they had no fear of God. See, and this is the other problem. They, they, they acted as if they did not fear God. And that's the great concern today in the church. That if we get away from the Word of God and the teaching of the Word of God, then it's going to be, you know, pick and choose theology time. There are certain things that we like to hear at church, and if I don't like it, I'm going to get out of here and go find a place where I, I like to hear what I like to hear. And that's pretty defeatist, as it were. You're getting away from the truth. You're saying what Nimrod said. I'm going to do this on my own. I'll get to heaven my own way. And groups like the emerging church today are, are saying, look, put your Bibles aside. Let's, let's consider the ways of the Buddhists because, you know, they, they do some praying. They pray too. I don't know if you know anything about Buddhism, but uh, Buddhism actually is, a, is an atheistic type of religion because they don't believe in a, in a personal God. They, they believe that you have to go through all these other steps. And eventually, that if you follow these particular steps, that you, you yourself will be God. You'll be a God. Kind of crazy. So in fact, this passage from Paul's letter to the Romans describes them and their time well. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. He says, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. Now, everything that Paul says in this section that you're going to see here comes right out of the Old Testament. There's none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. That is the reality. Nobody really seeks after God because if we really seek after God, we have to seek after God in His wholeness, in His completeness. Not again in in what we can pick and choose for ourselves. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. A lot of these come right out of the Proverbs. Uh, destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That describes very clearly what happened in the plains of Shinar or Shinar with Nimrod and the people who turned away from the true and living God. So let's go back to verses 1 and 2 of our text. Revelation 17 verses 1 and 2. Let's go back for just a little bit. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and they talked with me saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, the authority and the influence of this great harlot is considerable for as we've already seen in verse 15, It has invaded the nations of the world. She is a woman of great sin, committing fornication with the kings of the world, making her a greater enemy of God, turning more and more nations against the Lord with the intoxicating influence of of wine, the wine of her fornication. Now, this is something that I want to expand upon next time as we bring out further details about the condition, identification, and location of Babylon. Because it's an interesting thing that when you talk about the wilderness and the desert, you don't grow much wine out there. So start thinking about what you do find in the desert. Just a hint of what we'll talk about next time. Suffice it to say that God is not mocked. God is not mocked by what this great harlot has done and what people have done in following uh, her because his plan to eradicate this evil is very clear you remember back when we were reading psalm chapter 2 psalm 2 i should say when we when we looked at psalm 2 and uh uh the first part of it we saw i think it was verses 1 and 1 through 3 
And I want to, I want to bring this up to you very quickly because it says, Why do the nations rage? The people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth are set themselves and the, and, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His Messiah, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So that's this, this, this attitude of the nations in the last days when we, we, don't, we don't want any ties at all with God and His anointed, which means we don't want any ties with the true and living God and with Jesus Christ. So what is the most attacked religion today? Uh, well, I say religion or, or, or belief today. Well, it's Christianity. It's true Christianity. It's the cross. It's the Word of God. It's Jesus. It's Messiah. So what is the answer? See, uh, God says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He, he's going to laugh at this. He, he's not mocked, you see. Our God is not mocked. And then He shall speak to them in His wrath. I certainly don't want to stir his wrath up. But man is stirring his wrath up. And distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. There is a place called Zion. Where is it? It's in Israel. It's Jerusalem. This is not symbolic, allegorical. This is literal. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Here's the conversation between God and His Son, which is Jesus, which is Messiah. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Who's going to sit on the throne of David after the seven-year period of tribulation? Jesus. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's, That's pretty clear. That God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Yet God has given opportunity upon opportunity for people to get right with him. Lastly, let's consider verses 3 and 4 of our text. So he carried me away into the, in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a, a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Now, uh, are we dealing with symbolism? Are we dealing with allegory? Or are we dealing with literals here? This is the reason why we're going to spend a lot of time on this yet. John is carried away in the spirit into the wilderness, which can best be described as the desert. Certainly the wilderness does serve as a, it does serve as a type of the emptiness and desolation throughout Scripture. But there is a lot of wilderness and desert in the reality of the geographical locations dealing with the Middle East and the surrounding nations and peoples who serve as Israel's enemies. As a matter of fact, when you look around that whole area, it's pretty much desert. You look at all of Northern Africa, you look at all of the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, going even east into Iraq and Iran. There are some places that are higher up, just like in Israel. You know, you have the lowest point in the world at the Dead Sea. And, and then you go to other places. And, and near, near uh, uh, Mount Hermon, you have a place where it gets, it gets pretty cold up there. So, uh, but, but most of it is desert. Nevertheless, the wilderness is a place of desolation and death. And this serves as a reminder that death is the environment of the harlot and the beast, not life. Death is their environment. See, our God is a God of life. Satan wants to be a God, but he's, he's really just, he's just a proponent of death. Death came through him. The great harlot sitting on the beast is also an interesting picture. Because on the one hand, she is being supported by the political power which the Antichrist represents. But on the other hand, she dominates the beast, at least outwardly, directing him for a time. The scarlet beast, by the way, that we see in this passage is the same one described in Revelation 13, verse 1. It says, And I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. And we're going to tie all of this together as quick as we can in the next few weeks. But as we've seen before, he is directly related to Satan. What we see in verse 4 is the unlawful marriage, if you will, of politics and religion. 
a compromise that has to take place in some way and at some time. The colors that are mentioned in verse 4, purple and scarlet, are religious colors and denote a spiritual adultery. Outwardly and religiously appears to be joined to God and yet it is an untrue relationship. So in Scripture, spiritual adultery is usually describing the apostasy of Israel, bearing the name of God, yet worshiping and serving other gods. And as we've already read, the church is warned against it. So in our next study, we will focus our attention on certain views that uh, were standard positions a few years ago before the greater Islamic invasion and infusion into the nations of the world. And then consider more and more uh, a more viable, I should say, a more viable position in the light of the current geopolitical climate. So until then, I want you to remember these two passages of Scripture because we need to leave with the hope of the Word of God. It says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, it says, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. And lastly, in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. That was a man that was healed outside of the the temple. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, speaking of Jesus. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is what we stand upon. This is our stand. This is our strength. This is our truth. But it is the whole truth and nothing but the truth because Jesus said that his word will last forever. Let's pray.